0: Well, good morning, church. <laughs> I heard my name. That's good. You guys know who I am. I'm Marcus. <laughs> uh, I'm very thankful to be here this morning, um, the week after Easter. Um, we're kind of still riding the wave of excitement over uh, Resurrection Day. Um, it was a good day, wasn't it? Thank you. That's good. It's, it's kind of odd, though, because we make such a big deal out of uh, that one Sunday a year. Um, you know, we dress up a little bit nicer, or you know, that's the weekend that we invite the, the neighbor or the family member we've been meaning to invite, you know, for the last eleven and three quarters months. <laughs> or maybe we just managed to get her on time. If you're like me, that's a that's a little bit extra. We do a little bit extra that day, because it's a special day, right? Um, celebrating the day that Christ rose again. Um, the day that he conquered sin and death. But the reality of what happened on that day is not just for that day. That remembrance of his resurrection is not just for that day. It doesn't just exist on Easter. That's literally the reason that we're ever here, right? That's the reason that we have a church because he rose again. He's our savior. So to that end, it's, it's odd that we would treat any Sunday as less special than Easter Sunday or any day for that matter. The little things, the extra things we do on that day, we ought to be doing Every day. This is not me admonishing you for not dressing nicely this morning. I say this as a hypocrite. But as someone who needs to do better, not just because Jesus is risen on Resurrection Sunday, but because Jesus is risen, Jesus is risen. period. So, let's keep that excitement about the rest of the year. Let's have an abundance of joy in him. We're going to read some joyous scripture this morning. Uh, turn to Psalm 40, if you would, Please, if you just kind of get right in the middle of your Bible, you'll be pretty close to it. <clears throat> and let me begin by saying, as you get there, that there's, no, there's nothing hidden here. There's no um, special interpretation to uncover. There's no, there's no deep, like, special meaning that you're only going to get if you listen to me for the next 40 minutes. Um, this is a pretty plain and clear and resounding and joyful expression of love to our God. And it's really sweet when it's so effortless to understand scripture sometimes. It seems like a lot of time we have to kind of work at it a little bit to get the, the deeper meaning, but it's so clear on the surface here. There's not going to be any big aha moment. Well, there'll be two, actually. That'll be funnier if you've read the psalm. <laughs> we'll get there. We're going to go through the whole thing, all 17 verses. Um, there's a month of Sundays here, but we'll do it in one. Um, and we're going to see the build up. And the joyfulness and the, the excitement and the praises to God and the overwhelming awesomeness of our Lord. Um, and hopefully, we'll be bowled over by the magnitude of His mercy this morning. So, Psalm 40 is right at the tail end of the first section of Psalms. The book of Psalms is typically divided into five uh, books that goes back to at least to the first century. We know that from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Psalm 40 is the next to last psalm in the first section, the first book. It says at the top there that it's a. Uh, a Psalm of David, and it's for the choir director or for the, the chief musician, depending on your translation. There are about three dozen of those psalms that are, are listed as by David and, and are meant for the chief musician. They're meant to be performed. They're, they're an act of public worship. And I love the idea of singing the psalms. There are a few uh, musicians who do that, and I just I love the sweetness of listening to that. You know, and you can see it in the writing. David was a musician. First Samuel 16 tells us he would play the harp for King Saul to calm him down. Psalm 108, he writes, I will sing, I will sing praises even with my soul. Awake, harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. I love the idea of awakening the dawn with music and joyful expression of love to our God. And there's a lyrical quality here as we go through this. Uh, it's one of the many reasons that the Psalms are, are beautiful to read. If you don't spend time in the Psalms, I would encourage you to even just as in between kind of other devoted studies to books, read a few Psalms, they're refreshing. And like a well-composed album of music that is cohesive and tells a story together, there are groups of psalms that do kind of the same thing, that kind of build on each other and comment on each other and elaborate on each other. And Psalm 40 is part of one of such stretch. Psalm 37 is all about waiting. It's all about having patience, knowing that the, the unrepentant, the wicked, the evil will eventually be cut off and pass away and be no more, but the righteous in their patience will inherit the land and be delivered by God. Psalm 38, it's about how David is suffering and how foul he feels because of his own sin and because of those who seek his life. And he's, he's crying out to God for help. And 39, Psalm 39, it, even more so, it's a lament for God to hear him. And then in verse 40, we get to see the culmination of that. It brings us some resolution to those preceding psalms. And it starts with these joyful words in verse 1. I'm reading from the New King James Version. Yours may be slightly different. Verse one of Psalm forty says, "I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry." The preceding psalms are about waiting and waiting and wanting God to respond. I waited, David says. The Hebrew actually it uses the same word twice. It means I I waitingly waited. I waited and waiting. I, I waited more than anybody's waited ever before for the Lord. And what did the Lord do? Inclined to hear him. And that shouldn't be surprising that God hears us. We know that. I mean, Scripture is full of examples of that. Psalm one forty five eighteen says, "The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth." Matthew six eight says, "The Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him." John nine thirty one says, "Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does His will, He hears him." First Peter three twelve says, "The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers." But even if it hadn't been stated so obviously, and those are just a handful of many examples, we could probably safely assume that just because of his sheer omniscience, he hears us. If he's everywhere and knows all things, it stands to reason that he can hear what we're saying. So what David says here, though, is, is really remarkable. Not the, the, the fact that God can hear us, right? David's been crying out for a couple of psalms now, desperate for God to hear him and listen. And for many times before, you go through the psalms, the ones that David wrote especially, and you'll see how often he cries out to God. He cries out to God, almost begging for God to hear him. And this this psalm was likely written toward the end of his life when he had been through so much. So many ups and downs that required a tremendous amount of prayer. So he knows that God can hear him, and yet he still reports this thing. It's not just the ability to hear us, but the act of hearing it, the inclining that God would stoop down, that he would stretch out. It means to, to stretch or to lean the way that a parent leans toward a child. I have a, I have a dear friend who told me after we had our first child that one of the most important things I could ever do was to try to, to look at things from his perspective. And so as a baby, that means lying down on the floor. And as a toddler, that means getting down on your hands and knees. And as a, as a child, the age that my kids are now, it means bending down on one knee to look him in the eye and talk to him. Because as a young child, Everything that controls the world around you is so high up there. It's out of your reach. And what a relief it is for them to have the authority in their life come and be on their level. So this is in a picture of what God is doing for David here. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He didn't have to, chose to. Why would he do that? This is the, the God of the universe, almighty, that we're talking about. The Holy One, the omnipotent, perfect, powerful God. Why would he lean toward anybody? All of us are unworthy. We're sinful. Why would he incline toward us? Keep that in your mind as you look at verse 2 here. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, David says. That word pit shows up quite a lot more often than you might realize as you start actually going through the Psalms. A pit like Joseph was thrown into by his brothers. A pit like the dungeon that Jeremiah is thrown into that kind of swallows him up as he tries to step, like Sheol, like hell, like someplace you can't get out of under your own power. There's no climbing out of the pit, out of the the miry clay or the boggy clay. It's the kind of soil, have you ever been through a a, a field after a a crazy downpour and you step and your boot gets stuck and you, you cannot get it out? You have to physically remove your foot from the boot to take another step? It's that kind of clay. That kind of getting stuck that he's talking about here. But God brought David up out of these things, he says, out of a pit, out of miry clay, places that David could not overcome by himself. People don't get out of pits in the Bible on their own. Go check it out. They don't get out on their own. They don't climb up the sides. They need someone's help. They need somebody to come along with a rope or whatever. They need someone's mercy. And this is a really obvious place for a metaphor. I can't pass it up. How many of you ever felt like you've been in a pit, right? That you could say, yeah, I, I felt like that. I know what that's like. I feel, I feel trapped, overwhelmed, like I can't pull myself out. I would venture to say that probably most of us have felt that way at one point or another. And this, just a, a, a casual observation, I, I get this. Anna and I are in the process of trying to get our house ready to sell. And we, so we walked through the yard and the house uh, a couple weeks ago, and we made a list of all the stuff that needs to get done. You know, we've got to recall the shower and, you know, fix the gate latch and put trim on the living room window and all these things. And we thought, we'll, we'll just do a couple projects here and there, and we'll, we'll get it all done. Finished the list, 137 items. <laughs> we have about 90 days. <laughs> so I think, okay, well, you know, that's only one and a half things a day. That's doable, right, maybe, if we really push it. And there's stuff I can do two of in a day. I can replace a doorknob and hang a towel rod. I got it. Two in a day. I'm ahead of the curve, right? But then there's stuff on the list like paint house. (laughs) I'm not doing two things that day. (laughs) So you can kind of imagine how that's going. It it gets overwhelming quick. And that's just a very benign example. But it's a pretty clear metaphor here, this idea of, of a pit, being in a pit in our lives. But there's a sneakier metaphor here, too. So let's think about a pit literally for a minute here. A pit it refers probably to something kind of like a well, a, a narrow, deep hole. It's probably cold. It's probably damp. You can't climb up the walls of it. You're stuck. But there are lots of ways to be stuck. You could be stuck in chains. You'd be stuck because your car don't want to open. I mean, there's lots of ways to be stuck. But there's something about being in a pit that's different. The Bible keeps going back to that as the example of something you can't get out of. lots of examples in the Psalms, probably because you're powerless to get out by yourself, but there's also something else. Think about the view that you have in a pit. Imagine being down at the bottom of a hole, 10, 20, 30 feet down. Now, what you see around you is dirt, rocks, worms, some water. But if you look up, you'll see a a little circle of the sky, right? And that's all you can see. Is somebody standing nearby? Maybe somebody walking past with a rope. You have no idea because your, your view from the pit is so narrow. So are looking for a straw. You can see very little of it. You can't see the help that might be nearby and so you begin to feel hopeless. But there's also the flip side of that which is that the sky that you see up there, maybe it's nice and blue and maybe it's really hot outside and it's nice and cool down here in the pit. You know, it's not so hot. Maybe it's pleasant to look up there and see just peacefulness and no people. Sometimes that'd be nice, huh? You can't really see anyone else, so you have no one else to worry about. And you can't see or or hear the man near the pit who's just begging for somebody to reach down and pull him up some water. Or you can't see the, the neighbors who are just around the corner from here, just 100 feet away from the pit, who are fighting and arguing and utterly unrepentant toward each other. You can't see the woman walking toward the pit desperate to draw some water for her little children. All right? You can't see anybody traveling the road who, who has just lost his child or lost his home or whatever it is. You can't see anybody who's helpless because you can't see anyone at all. And so you don't see anyone who needs the gospel. And so you don't share it with anyone. It can get very cozy down in the pit. I am more afraid, church, of being in a pit and enjoying it than I am about being in a pit and fearing it. Let's come back to the pit that David's talking about. He calls it horrible, or depending on your translation, the pit of destruction or tumult. David says, God brought me up out of the pit and the miry clay. God gave me mercy and brought me up out of a place I could not get out of on my own. And here's where you see the character of God, church. Yes, as David puts it, he brought him out of a pit, out of the clay, but not only that. He could have stopped there, but instead he goes farther. He puts his feet upon a rock. And establish his steps. Now, if you imagine yourself in that kind of clay, that kind of muck, the kind where your boots come off, there's water pooling around your feet, you can imagine the joy it would be to step onto solid ground. And we could spend the next half hour or the next half a year talking about Christ as the rock upon which we stand. We'll do that another time. But instead, just imagine the relief for David at being stuck down here metaphorically <clears throat> and being brought up out of the pit and not just set on sand or grass or dirt but on solid rock your footsteps firm and able to hold your ground there's traction there that's a picture of god's abundance and his mercy it would have been enough just to pull him out of the pit that would have been enough but he also established him firmly why does god go so far above and beyond for us church he does this constantly, right? He gives us constantly more than we deserve. So our very born-again life is evidence of that. John 10.10 10 calls it abundant life. We deserve death because of sin, yet, yet Christ came to save and to give us life. Not just life, but abundant life. And it would, be, it would be worth rejoicing forever just to have that life. Just to be forgiven of our sin, but God gives us abundant life. And he invites us to be a part of his presence and partake of his glory that we don't deserve. We have an above and beyond God. That's pretty cool. But why? Why would he do that? Verse 3 will answer that question. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So God has inclined to David. He's leaned to him. He's heard him. He's brought him up out of a helpless state. He's established his steps and he's put a new song in his mouth. God changes the state of things. David was helpless. Now he's rescued. He was stuck in the muck and now he's standing on a firm rock. He was singing something else. I don't know what. Now he's singing praises to our God and he loves it. He rejoices over this. And you note something here. He says the song is praise to our God. He doesn't say it's really beautiful, melodious notes. You notice that? He doesn't qualify the the quality of the singing itself, but the content and the heart and the source of it. That's why I don't fear singing loud in here with y'all. With Apologies to those who were standing in front of me this morning. That's why I'm constantly singing around the house. I ask my kids how much I sing at home. They'll probably roll their eyes at you, but that'll give you an indication. Constantly. Not because I love the sound of my own voice. I have the same trepidations and fear of my voice that many of you probably do. It it pains me. I literally cringe when I listen to my sermons. It it hurts physically. (laughs) But I do it because I need to do it. And I'm not afraid to sing to God. Not because the world appreciates it or because you guys are going to put me on the track to a record label, but because God loves that sound. David says, He put that song on my mouth. How could I not return it to him? Praise to him. Why would he do that? Why would he fill David's mouth with praise? The rest of the verse here, Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. When God does these things, when he, when he restores us out of unrestorable situations and, and gives us words to praise him, what happens? Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord. This is one of those times that we have to take the word in its, its full biblical context and not just our contemporary understanding because we, we hear the word fear and we think to be scared of something. And that, that's not the full meaning. That's a shallow understanding. Fear means Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap, he lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord, let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it was done, he commanded, and it stood fast. Fear means Matthew 17, verse 5. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Fear means what John saw in Revelation fifteen three. They sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you, for your judgments have been manifested. When people witness the work of God in creation, in presence, in reverence, there is a natural and healthy and awful fear of the Lord and trust in the Lord. Many, David says, will be so struck by who you are because of this song of praise that you've put in my mouth. You've given me that so that they will fear and trust in you. That's why God does this. And that's a good thing for them. Verse 4 tells us, Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Blessed is that man who hears me praising God with the song that he gave me. And blessed is that man who does not respect the proud, who doesn't lapse into falsehood, as the NASB calls it. Those are serious dangers, church. When Jesus warns his disciples, when when Paul writes warnings to the churches, when when John writes to warn believers, what are they warning about? They're warning about pride and lies. Pride and lies. And why are those things so enticing anyway? See what David says next in verse 5. Many, O Lord, my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. And your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. This is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. Let me read that again. Here's the the New American Standard Version. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. I told you there's nothing hidden in this chapter. It's so out in front. It's so clear. And it makes you wonder, doesn't it, church, how anybody could be enticed by pride and lies when this God exists? When the works of God are so, so utterly and incomparably wonderful? Psalm one forty five seventeen says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and glorious in all his works. How could anyone in the face of that be enticed by pride and lies? Well, it, it bears out in this verse, partly. David says that we can't comprehend, we can't number and list all the things that God has done. Scripture elsewhere tells us that we, we can't fully comprehend the mind of God or understand him completely. He's beyond understanding. We can't understand his thoughts and processes and we can't understand the way that he does and this can be frightening if we don't weigh the whole balance of Scripture. The human mind doesn't like uncertainty. One of the, the biggest struggles that Ann and I have right now with our, our oldest is that when he doesn't know the answer to something, he'll make up the answer. I tell him every day, time and time again, if you don't know something, just ask. i would be happy to tell you. Lots of resources. We'll figure it out. If I don't know it, we'll figure it out together. But he just doesn't. He says, I'm pretty sure it's this. And you should hear the amazing theories about why things are the way they are in our house. His comprehension of physics would be uh, quite a textbook. (laughs) But the human mind doesn't like to not know. It likes certainty. It likes to have concreteness. We like to stand on rocks. That's part of the beauty with which God made us. It's part of why science is so amazing. It's part of why humanity has this spirit of adventure in all things and exploration. We want to know stuff, and it's good to want to know more things. But the flip side is that we can begin to think that everything should be understandable. Without faith, we can fall into the trap of thinking that, that we should be able to understand God and also the things He does, as this verse talks about. And if we think that God must be understandable, This can lead us to try to frame everything that he does and says and all of this in a context that allows us to wrap our head around it for our convenience. That can lead us to an understanding of God that is shallow, that is limited by our understanding. If, for example, we cannot comprehend how it's possible for Jesus to be both God and man, if we believe everything must be understandable, it's very hard to accept that. We're prone to dismiss things we don't understand then. Then we get into some really wacky and sad theology. I don't want God to be limited by my understanding. And just because we don't understand something doesn't mean it's not true. It leads to a blasphemous form of pride. Something to be wary of. It's okay not to fully understand God. It is okay. Even when he puts things so clearly on a page like this, it's okay not to fully get it. As he does. He doesn't depend on us getting it in order for it to be true. That's a relief. I prefer a God who is smarter than I am. It's okay to be a little bit confused by the extent of God's glory. Verse 6 is a verse that, that can be a little bit confusing at first. It says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. It My ears you have opened. The hearing ear and the seeing eye, the Lord has made them both. It says in Proverbs, God has enabled me to understand, to see, to get it. That's great to recognize what he's done and who he is. He has enabled that because without him, I'm totally blind to his glory and his, his goodness. And in that blindness, I can be enticed by pride and lies. So thank God he opens our ears. David says, thank you. He says, his ears were opened. And isn't it interesting that David has been spending the last few Psalms and really at this point in his life, much of his life, asking God to hear him. And yet it's his ears that need to be opened, right? It's his ears that were opened and led to this joy. That's a good reminder for us, church. Anybody ever been in a mode where you're just, you're, you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and then you, you start to ask, God, are you listening? Do you hear me? Am I, am I getting through? It's not his ears that need to be opened. There's, a, there's another interesting possibility meaning to this too of what it means to have open ears. It comes from Exodus 21 and it involves a literal opening of the ear. Um, see, God gave uh, rules, laws for slaves and how they were to be treated, um, especially if they were Hebrews. Exodus 21 states that the slave would be bound to his master for six years, and then he would be able to go free. And if he was married, he could take his wife and any children with him. And and there's more specifics as you go through the chapter. There's verses 5 and 6 there in Exodus 21 says, But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. So your servant had an option at the end of those six years not to go free, which the, the, the master would mark by piercing his ear, literally opening his ear. And in our contemporary understanding of slavery, that seems absolutely ludicrous that you would ever agree to that. Why would anyone voluntarily stay a slave? Huh? You wouldn't do it if your master was unpleasant, or if he if he beat you or mistreated you, or didn't feed you well, or or slandered you, if he didn't care about you. But what if he did? What if he did care about you? What if he took really good care of you? What if he what if he knew your needs before you did and heard everything you said and sought to help you when you were hurt and told you you were loved and even sacrificed of himself for you? What if your master's wonderful works were too many to be counted? That's not such a bad deal then, is it? You might be excited to make it clear to everyone who sees you that you're his. So my ears you have opened, David says, maybe to hear, maybe as a metaphor for his serving the Lord. But why would he do that? Why would he open David's ears? It, it has something to do probably with the next rest of the verse and the next couple of verses. You might be familiar with these from Hebrews 10. Verses 6 through 8 are, are quoted there in Hebrews chapter 10. And they're framed as something that Jesus Christ can or will or does say. And they can be a little bit odd at first. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. And then I said, behold, I come. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. It says, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Well, of course he did. Didn't God require those things? Those sacrifices and offerings were certainly things that were needed to be done under, under the law that God asked them for. And now David writes that God didn't want them. What is it that God requires and desires? He desires our fellowship, our our worship, our devotion, our faith. That's what he desires. And as for what he requires, he requires atonement for our sin, right? Were these things accomplished through the sacrifices and the offerings? No, not in full. They were pictures of the true sacrifice to come in Christ. And that's why we're no longer bound by these things, to give these things. Christ has done what the Lord desired and required once and for all. David is a a near, near term for then, human fulfillment of those verses. Jesus is the long-term divine fulfillment of those verses. Certainly, David is fulfilling his rightful place as the king to come that was indicated in older scriptures. But Christ is the permanent king pointed to by all of scripture. And David delights to do God's will, certainly, except when he doesn't. He's a man after God's own heart, but he's still a man. Still prone to sin and coming up short. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, delights to do God's will so thoroughly that he was willing to give his life up for that. Take this cup from me if possible, he said. Nevertheless, your will be done. To do the Father's will is like food for Jesus, he says in John chapter 4. It's the essential thing needed to continue. As for the law, it's written on David's heart, certainly. And that's a a cool prelude to how the Holy Spirit works in us. But Jesus came not just to know the law, but to fulfill it. And so you see the parallels there between David and Christ, the imperfect and the perfect. These verses are are a bowing down to God to recognize his awesomeness and to recognize that he's called me, he's called David, he said, to submit to his will and to know his truth. And in verse 9, to proclaim his righteousness, he says there I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving-kindness and your truth from the great assembly. David knows the good news of righteousness. He he knows God's faithfulness, he knows God's salvation, he knows God's loving-kindness, and he knows God's truth, and he has a choice to hide them in his heart. To restrain his lips or to proclaim it in the great assembly. To take this joyful knowledge of how impressive and thorough and unending are God's mercies and joys that are beyond recounting, and to share it, to sing the song that God has put in his mouth, so that others will see it and hear and fear the Lord. We have that same choice, church. It's not me who declares his righteousness in the assembly. I have a microphone. you have lives. It doesn't happen just here. We have the same choice to, to make God known, to make his glories known, to take the example of Jesus, who preached the gospel from town to town, to large crowds and small groups. We have the, the option to take the example of Peter, who, who shared the gospel from the rooftops and to strangers. We have, the, we have the option to take the example of, of Paul who preached the gospel in city after city after city. Shipwrecks be damned. And they were all killed for their trouble, by the way. Take their example anyway. Encouraging verses this morning. <laughs> they refused to hide the righteousness of God in their hearts. They refused to conceal his loving kindness and his truth. They were, they were compelled by the majesty of his grace and his glory to share what they knew about him. And and, they and, and many others would be put to death because of it. Why would God do that? Why would he make his glory so powerfully obvious and clear and distinct and profound that people would want, would still want to go and share it abundantly even if it leads to their own death? David takes solace in God's mercy even knowing that he may be persecuted for praising God. Verse 11, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head, and therefore my heart fails me. David asks the Lord to continue showing him his loves. It's tender mercies. It's a really sweet phrase. Tender mercies, uh, uh, compassions. David says, don't hold back. If he needs them, he's surrounded by evils. And just as earlier, we could say, yeah, I felt like I've been in a pit before. We could probably all say at some point, I feel like I've been surrounded by evil. I can't look up. The bad stuff is more than the hairs of my head. My heart is failing. Stuck in the clay. Why do we get so stuck? Is God punishing us? Or has someone forced us to be miserable? Or... Do we just have plain old bad luck? Is that why things are so rough? Look at what David says. What's overtaken him? It's not forces outside of his control. It's not the, the liberal media or right-wing extremists. It's, it's the, the failing of David's heart is because of his iniquities. He says, my iniquities have overtaken me. That's what has overcome me. I don't have anyone else to blame. I am overwhelmed by my own incompetence to be righteous, and I need you, Lord, he says. Your loving kindness and truth continually preserve me. They're my lifeblood. Without them, he would succumb to his own foolishness, just as we all would. There's an echo of this on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27. In that moment when our collective iniquity overtook Jesus and he gave up his life, his own iniquities could never overtake him because he had none. And therefore, he was able to take on ours. My heart is weak. And I can succumb to evil and pride and lies and iniquity and be overcome but not so for God he's the one who supplies mercy and grace and love and kindness remember verse 5 David's iniquities might be more than the hairs of his head but God's wonderful works are more than can even be numbered yeah my heart fails me David says we say but God's heart doesn't fail this kind of love and grace is overwhelming overpowering why would he be so good to us Why would he do this? Verse 13 says, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Here's your aha moment. Sorry, I couldn't resist. (laughs) Be pleased, Lord, to deliver me, he says. What pleases God? It's an interesting study to do sometime. What pleases God? The, 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 the scripture tells us that he hates sin. That also tells us that uh, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So by that math, if I'm doing it right, it seems to indicate that he's not pleased with us in a general sense. But keeping his commands, um, obedience, doing good, loving others, these things are said to be pleasing to God. They can be summed up in Micah verse 6-8 to, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. And there's a place in the Bible where God says very pointedly what is pleasing to him. Matthew 3:17 says, "And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased.'" And again in Matthew 17:5, which we read a few minutes ago, on the mount of transfiguration, which was witnessed by three of his apostles, a voice came out of the cloud saying, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Hear him. So what is God pleased with? Not us, not our sacrifices, not our sin offerings, not our burnt offerings, not our you know, stunning personalities or good looks. <clears throat> God is pleased with Jesus. He's pleased with Christ to be born. He's pleased for Christ to preach the truth. He's pleased with Christ to teach his disciples. It's pleasing for Christ to pray and to suffer and to die and to rise again on Easter. But having done that forever... It's pleasing for Christ to be the substitutionary sacrifice for all of us, to atone for us, to deliver us in ways more profound than David could possibly have really imagined. It is pleasing for God to impart his righteousness to us through Christ. Philippians chapter 3 verse 8 says, "Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness" which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, pleases God to impart his righteousness to us through Christ. It pleases God to make for himself a worthy bride. Isaiah 61 verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. It pleases God to have this worship. David's concern was a more immediate concern for for his life and for the attacks that he faced. And he faced a lot. And it pleases God to deliver us sometimes from those things but more so to deliver us eternally from our sin and our iniquity. Why would he do that? Why would he treat us so differently, so much much better than how David asks him to treat others in the next couple of verses? Psalm 40, verse 14 says, Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. There are people seeking to destroy David who, who wish him evil, saying, aha, which I guess is bad. Um, couldn't find any direct references for that. So I have to assume it means, like it does contemporarily, pointing out someone's fault. Aha, I see it. Trying to trap somebody and lay accusations on them. David faced that a lot. <clears throat> David asked God to deal with these people. He says for them to be ashamed, to be confused, to be, to be driven backward, brought to dishonor. Confounded. This is David getting back at the people who are mean to him, right? Line them up, God. No, these are, I've prayed like that before and then I've had to apologize. That's not what's happening here. Let's do the math. David says God should put these people to dishonor who wish him evil. Not because David is so awesome or because they're so evil even, but because they don't know God. Look at the whole Psalm, Psalm 40. David has not hidden God's truth. He has not hidden God's righteousness. He has not hidden God's loving kindness. He has declared us, He's proclaimed it all around so that everyone will know who comes across him, what God has done. So anyone who know, who knows what David says, knows that God has brought him up out of a pit, has saved him from the miry clay. And so anybody who comes against David is also coming against that proclamation against the new song that's in David's mouth. Some people will fear it and fear the Lord, sorry, and trust in him. And some will seek to destroy David. They'll seek to destroy those who proclaim God's mercies and glory. So David says, I'm not hiding your awesomeness, Lord. Everyone who comes in contact with me knows about it. And yet there are some who fight against it and therefore against you. So, Deal with them. Let them be ashamed and confused and dishonored. Why would David want that to be how they feel? Let's see verse 16 and 17. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. David said, there are all these people who wish me ill. I made a lot of enemies in my life. Yet there are also people who hear and fear and trust the Lord. Let those be glad and and rejoice. Those who say, your salvation is wonderful. And they say this, this, this very amazing phrase, let the Lord be magnified. It doesn't talk about what we have or who we are, but where our hearts are at. Let all those who seek you not those who are wealthy or powerful or, or have their lives tidied up or who other people admire, but those who seek you, who pursue you, those who look and will find. Are we in the habit of pursuing God? Are we, are we getting after him or are we waiting for him to be delivered to us? Maybe At church or we happen to remember to pray or, or, you know, maybe we have friends who remind us about him. Those are good things. But are we being given God or are we given over to him? It's a different state, David says. Do we love his salvation? And I don't mean the, the effect of his salvation, that I don't have to worry about where I'm going, but love it the way that he loved us. Not just the benefit from it, but his salvation, which he has provided for us, Do we love it or are we just thankful for it? Different things. Do we love it enough to rejoice? To be glad in it? In him? Do we love it enough to say continually, the Lord be magnified? Let me take a literal approach for a minute. Everyone here has probably used a magnifying glass at some point, right? I'm going to assume so. If you're really in a pinch, you can, you can borrow my glasses. The prescription is pretty good. But the idea of magnifying something, it, it means what? Yeah, we, we think it, it makes it bigger. But it doesn't actually. See, when I, when I use a magnifying glass to look at an ant, the ant doesn't get bigger, does it? My perception of it changes. I see more of it. When we magnify the Lord. We don't make him bigger. Can't do that. Our perception of him changes. We see more of him. He's more prominent in our lives. I said when we began this morning that we should not let a day go by that we're not filled with joy like we are in Easter over what God has accomplished and promised. <clears throat> we should always remember what Jesus did on the cross and after the cross. And we should ask, why would he do that? Why would he, what would he do? Deign to come to earth and live an entire perfect life and be ridiculed and admonished and assaulted and beaten and harassed and finally killed? Why would he do that? Just to raise up from the dead again and go back to where he was in the first place. Why would he do that? And as you ask that question throughout Psalm 40, you're going to see the same answer. You're going to see it throughout all of the Psalms. You're going to see it through the Old Testament. You'll see it through the whole Bible. All of his word, you ask that question, you get the same answer. Why does he do this? for his glory so he would be magnified if you're new here this morning church or if you're just if you're just beginning to know God or if you're um if you're listening to this you know years from now online <laughs> i just made time travel that's cool <laughs> you might be very glad to hear that God did this for you and you should be you should be very excited that God did this for you <clears throat> that that you can find redemption in him salvation And spend eternity with him. But you should also understand that he didn't do it just for you. It's very important. He did it for himself. He did it so that you would spend that eternity that you now have with him, praising him, worshiping him. He inclined to us and heard our cries. He brought us up out of a horrible pit, church. I think about the pit that was my life before I knew the Lord tiny sliver of blue sky and I was satisfied with that. I can see a lot more now. He inclined to us. He brought us out of a pit. He brought us out of the clay for his glory. So praise him for that. Magnify him. See how big he truly is as you go through the Psalms. Change your perception. Change how much prominence he has in your life. And most of all, sing the song that he's put in your mouth. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. We cannot thank you enough, Lord. There's, there's no way to put into words, not even David could do it in dozens and dozens of tries, could put into words the fullness of your majesty and glory for which you saved us to proclaim and to magnify and to praise and worship forever. Thank you for inclining your ear to us, Lord, who don't deserve it. Thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us that we didn't deserve it. Thank you for the promise you have made that you will never break. We love you so much, Father. You are truly beyond our understanding and that's okay. We rejoice in the opportunity to learn about you more. And I pray that as we magnify you, that we start to notice more and more details, that our praise and our worship and our song would grow ever fuller throughout our lives, Lord. We love you so much. Amen.